You're listening to Work Tape, episode 48. Welcome back to another episode of the Work Tape podcast. Uh, once again, it's your boy, Mitchell Palmer. We got Isaac Grover uh, in the building here as well. We've just been kind of on a roll with these last few episodes recently. Delivered some very hot takes, but now we're going to segue into something that we introduced at the end of the last episode, which is the idea of previously forgotten and or undiscovered tracks of a time period resurging on the Billboard charts. And one such way that that's been done is through the use of music in television and film. And in this particular example, Stranger Things season four had recently just dropped. I think it's been less than a month. Yes, it's been less than a month for sure. I think it's only been like a few weeks. But uh, just in that few weeks, you have seen a significant amount of traffic and attention into songs from the period. Uh, One of them being a reggae gem from musical youth, Past the Duchy, which was used as part of the soundtrack in other films, such as the live-action Scooby-Doo, for example, which is only appropriate because... (laughs) Right. Uh, Scooby and Shag probably do quite a bit of green. They probably don't do it for the sake of it being a kid's show, but honestly, they have a ton of munchies, and uh, (laughs) there's really only one logical conclusion that they're... um, And, I mean, they do have a van, so I'm like, you know, what kind of mysteries are in that van? (laughs) As you will. So, but that's besides the point. Um, And, I mean, I guess past the duchy is, you know, the terminology, so that makes sense. It's not a euphemism for Scooby Snacks. Understood. No, it's it's very... No. Um, But we have seen the resurgence in that track, but by far the, the track that is receiving the most amount of attention on TikTok and the internet at large is, yes, Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. Make a deal with God. Yes, a very a very specific vocal inflection and whatnot. And I guess it's probably a little bit of a revolutionary track, but it sounds like, Isaac, that you know quite a bit about Kate Bush. So I'm gonna have you I'm gonna have you take this one. I think that you have a lot to say about this. Well I guess there's no point hiding behind the bush and ah. get out of the bush and Start talking about Bush because he was the greatest president. Just kidding. Um, Kate Bush is fantastic. Mm. I actually have to be honest. Now, I liked Kate Bush, but the first time I heard Running Up That Hill. Yes. Meg Myers. It was before the Stranger Things situation. And so I will say that the Kate Bush version is the best version. I like it the most. Even though I'm more of an advocate for the original songs, I won't always agree that the originals are my favorite. I think Hey Joe, Jimi Hendrix version is the best. And I also think that Grapevine is the best version, Marvin Gaye. I mean, that's the best version of that song. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I didn't even know that it was originally recorded by another artist until like very recently, before Marvin, anyway. Like, I thought it was Marvin's song originally. Same could be said about Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. Oh, that's true. Yeah, with uh, Dolly. Yep. Yeah, and then you're going to go on Hendrix, too, all along the Watchtower, the Bob Dylan cover. I was the weird guy that liked the Bob Dylan version better, but I'm not going to lie. Now I'm in a a place where I like them both pretty equally. But uh, concerning Running Up That Hill, no one does it as well as Kate because Meg Myers did a good, it's kind of like a mock-alike. It's like a mock version. It literally sounds the same. She doesn't change it much in the cover. 
But Kate's version is just so raw. It's so good. And Kate is a very charismatic. She owns it on the mic. She's not timid. You know, she's dynamic. She's, I don't know. She's, she's unique. And it's hard to say this because there are so many unique artists out there. Kate isn't the only good artist, but she was pretty avant-garde for her time. And she was different at the moment. You know, I think if it were not for people like Kate Bush, we wouldn't really have our Bjorks. Now, I'm not saying Bjork wouldn't have done her thing because Bjork is on another level, too. They're both very different artists, both equally amazing, in my opinion, but they're just different. Yeah. Kate is a fierce vocalist, and that showcases itself in Running Up That Hill. And so, yeah, I heard the Meg Myers version, and then Stranger Things kind of, you know, did its thing. And now I see, like, a resurgence. And I have to be honest, I have not watched Stranger Things all the way through. I only watched, like, a couple episodes for the first season. Yeah. And what happened was someone kind of spoiled it for me. At least I think they spoiled it. So I just wanted to assume that they spoiled it and I didn't want to watch it. And now here we are in season four and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, this is like the best show again. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I should have watched it. But it's fine. I'm cool with not having to jump on a train. If I want to watch it, I'll watch it. And if not, whatever. But I am happy to hear that that song is on the uptrend because Mm -hmm. that's an amazing song. And I also have to say, huge Killers fan over here. Up until Sawdust, or or Day and Age, actually. I have to say Day and Age. I didn't really like Battleborn that much, but the killers, like the Caution era and later, and Mirage, right? Yeah, imploding the Mirage or whatever, yeah. Yeah, it it's just like Kate Bush ripoffs, like left and right. And this is not just the killers. This is... Mm. Running Up That Hill is very similar to Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, where... yeah. Yeah, everyone has been parroting that sound or they've been parroting Bob Dylan style of singing. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've told you my people that I like, you know, like Kurt Vile and even um, what's his name? There's Dope Lemon. He had Marinade. That was a pretty big song. But there's this other song by. Oh, uh, why do I want to see Mac Miller? What's his name? He did on the level. Oh, Mac DeMarco. Mac <laughs> my DeMarco, names yeah. are terrible. Right. My- no, no, you're not the only person who's confused Marco and Mac Miller, I'm oh sure. God. They're totally different. Yeah, it's totally different <laughs> as of the spectrum. I mean, Mac DeMarco has more in common with like Tame Impala than yes, like. Yes. So. But, but I like that sound, you know, even the Courtney Barnett sound. I've, I guess I've technically trashed on her, but I don't really mean to trash on her. I like that sound. Yeah. But it, it gets a little old hat, you know, or uh, we're on drugs. Like. Hmm. The running up that hill dreams and overall Bob Dylan sound is something that people have just kind of been piggybacking for the last several years, actually. And I just think it just becomes a bit unoriginal. Yeah. That's why I have, if I, if I were to say one thing that's amazing about Billie Eilish is the fact that, you know, she was doing different stuff. And then there are other artists who were doing different stuff. Heck, Kate Bush is amazing because during her time in the 70s and 80s, she was treading new ground. Yeah. Would it be safe to say almost that Kate Bush was like the Billie Eilish of her day? Perhaps a little bit? I guess I can't. Maybe not, maybe not as popular in that respect. No, 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 no. No, you're not, right. Not on the popularity aspect, for sure. But I could say that maybe in like the avant-garde experimental, like we're trying to push the envelope forward kind of thing, um, that that would be. A thing, and actually, I just looked at it right now. Thanks to Stranger Things, 
this Kate Bush song is now number one in the UK after like 30 years. So crazy, crazy. Yeah, I, I did read that. And Kate Bush apparently isn't one for the camera. Yeah. Or the the spotlight. And so she gave some appearance. I really don't know what she said or what a reporter says that she said. But regarding your question, I'm not trying to tread new ground here. I'm just going to repeat what I've heard, but I'm going to repeat something that I agree with. And a lot of people didn't like it. So Dave Grohl made that comment about Billie Eilish being a Nirvana in a way uh, of her time. Yeah, I remember. Right. And of course, people are assuming he means by genre. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about cultural relevance. Yes. And I agree with that statement. And so now when you go back to, to Kate Bush. Yeah. I consider her more like a Regina Spector, a little bit more like a Bjork. I think a little bit more popular in a way for her time than a Bjork. PJ Harvey, but those people, they didn't get huge. They didn't get gigantic. They didn't get to the level of Billy or Nirvana as far as significance. And so for that, I say in a way, no. Right. But if we're going to talk about genre wise, yeah. I, I think Kate Bush, Bjork, and Billy. PJ Harvey and Emojin Heap and uh, Regina Spector, all of those women are alternative. Yeah. Of some kind. Yeah. And I, and I or think new that, wave because Kate Bush, in my opinion, also kind of did that new wavey sure. type stuff too. For the, for the new wave thing. But I think the commonality too is, is just like the fact that all of them in some way, shape or form have kind of pushed things forward a little bit. Yes, they both did. If that's your question, then that's my answer. They definitely both have pushed boundaries, in my opinion. And I think that Kate has made the music space more interesting. Yeah, for sure. I think if we didn't have people like Kate Bush, the music space would be just a little bit more boring. I agree. And, you know, that's definitely something that, you know, we have to appreciate the things that are a little bit different in that respect, just because, you know, so many people are saying, you know, like music now is like you know, nowhere near like what it used to be. Oh, you know, there's no like original. You know, PJ Harvey said that she actually uh, made a comment within like the last year or two that she thinks music today, pop music is highly unoriginal. And keep in mind, she's a 90s artist. Yeah. I listened to PJ and she's really good. And I was like, wow, I hear a lot of what Billy's doing right now that PJ did two decades ago. Yeah. And so she kind of said one of the most pretentious things ever, but it made me laugh. Yeah. She said, I don't really listen to modern pop anymore. I'm into theater now. Because <laughs> <laughs> she found theater much more inspiring and more fresh and um, treading new areas, new territory than pop today. Well, that, and that's fair. And I mean, to a certain extent, I would say that her statement has some validity. I would say... Actually, now I would say because of some technology and just accessibility reasons and whatnot, I would say actually that there's some like real innovative type things going on in even popular music now. And there, there is, by the way, I, I don't disagree with that statement. Yeah. Just to clarify that. Well, and, and, we, and you, you kind of reference back like the 90s and whatnot. And I, I remember even like showing you some stuff from like Massive Attack with like the trip hop kind of thing and the vocals on some of those songs. And I think I remember having a conversation about like, oh, yeah, Billie Eilish would like sound great on like a trip hop beat. Yeah. Or some Portishead type stuff. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, Massive Attack and Portishead, yeah, are both huge proprietors in that in that trip hop genre. I'm kind of like stunned that trip hop didn't go further than like it did. I mean, I, I knew that it had its moment in the sun, like obviously, like in the 90s, people were listening to it, but I, I'm just kind of surprised that people didn't really carry it on, like especially when you hear some of these other artists going in that more moody, ambient kind of like direction. Like, I'm surprised that more trip hop elements didn't scatter through. But I guess like everything, there's things that go in cycles. Sure. So maybe it's just like, you know, a certain kind of artist or a certain kind of... You know what I noticed? What? What I noticed was uh, for 90s stuff, all of those bands before Nirvana, Pixies, Sonic Youth. Yeah. Husker Du. And then I'm going to name one other one. Oh, Melvin's. Melvin's, yeah. Yeah, bands like those, they got more popularity and attention because of Nirvana. Yeah. And so, you know, we had that grunge phase in the in the late 80s, early 90s. And then by the mid, late 90s, you know, we're we're on to, to Radiohead and Blur, right? Oh, yeah. Rip pop, yeah. Definitely. Rip-pop. Everything. And then Oasis, right? Yeah, Oasis. And everything got kind of set up for um for bands like uh, you know, Foo Fighters kind of carried the torch to an extent, right? But but you know, Hole Hole was even doing things. I mean, Hole caught on the grunge and the post grunge. I think Hole are one of the few bands that did the grunge and the post grunge really well. Yeah, because a lot of bands either they only did the grunge and they stopped and they didn't do anything else, or they did the post grunge. And I like them because I grew up in them. But a lot of people hate post grunge, and I get it because I don't like a lot of post grunge too. There's like a certain section of post grunge that I like, and a good amount that I hate. Oh yeah, and then by the late '90s, I noticed music became pretty safe again because you know we had boys to men and then we also had all saints we even had tlc we had some cool stuff happening in the pop era in the 90s but the 90s was really kind of a time for the rock guys to kind of shine and it was a really weird scraggly group of people in the rock area but it got really safe with brit pop in the mid late 90s and then by the late 90s post grunge you know it became really safe and so now back to your point about the trip hop yeah, I noticed that it really fell off, even though uh, Kid A, you know, made its presence and, and it wasn't like it was it was look because it was a Radiohead album. It was as groundbreaking as I guess a semi uh, what would you say? Semi pushing boundaries Radiohead like album, right? It was semi pushing boundaries. Yeah, like it, it could be kind of categorized as like experimental. It was still experimental. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was like the most experimental they'd ever been, but it was still enough where people would be like, whoa, what what is this? And so I think by the end of the 90s, music got safe. Like, I like Radiohead, but people were not doing what Radiohead were doing. And you and I love Coldplay. Top five, right? That's like one of our bands. But let's be honest. Coldplay, even though they had a few really, in my opinion, they have at least four top tier, maybe four or five, but at least four, maybe three or four top tier. Heck, you could even put it down to two, but no fewer than two, right? Top tier records. I'd say those, I'd say everything up to Vita, Viva was probably top tier. Okay, sure. That was my mentality. Their first four records were top tier. Yeah. Yeah. Parachutes, yeah. Parachutes, Rep, X and Y, and Viva are like, yeah. Yes. That's pretty top, top tier stuff. Yeah. So definitely. I love those records. I'd have to say at least three of those records are my top 20. Three of them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Maybe two or three of them. However, kind of going back to safe pop melodies at that, it, it, that's just the truth. And guess what? 
I'd have to say bands like Foster the People, MGMT, and Alt-J. They kind of yeah. brought us out of that and went back to more experimental mainstream stuff, in my opinion. And I think Billie Eilish kind of wanted you know, the same. So what I'm saying is, yeah. even though she came you know, several years later, but what I'm saying is that I love Coldplay. I like bands. And actually, I never like bands like Coldplay. I only like Coldplay. Um, that's uh, <laughs> knockoffs just sound like exactly that. It just uh-uh. it sounds like a Coldplay knockoff, and you're just like, I don't want to listen to this. No, Coldplay is the closest I'm okay with getting to a band that really parodied off Radiohead and U2. I don't want any other band that does that. What they did, no, yeah, that's a really good. Of course, yeah, Radiohead, U2. But I would actually make a really strong argument, especially with Parachutes, that Jeff Buckley too was a huge influence. Yes. And I think Chris Martin has even said on numerous occasions, yeah, we kind of bit off of Jeff Buckley on Parachutes, especially. Jeff Buckley was super influential to, I mean, wow, like Coldplay, Radiohead, Muse, and maybe even Billie Eilish to a certain extent could be inspired by Jeff Buckley a little bit, at least like with some of the weird, like not weird, but like kind of that vocal styling. But yeah, no, I, I say that like, Jeff Buckley's had like a profound influence, even though he only had one album, which was, I know, just in part because his life was just cut so short and not by natural circumstances and whatnot. And it's just sad to think about, but wow. I have to like throw Jeff Buckley into that conversation, like of people that were influencing of Coldplay, especially on parachutes. No, you make a good point. So yeah, I forgot about the Jeff Buckley relation. Definitely. So on top of, yeah, the Jeff Buckley, U2, Radiohead, it's very obvious that Coldplay were highly influenced by bands like that, especially during their Starfish era. But yeah, I'd have to say that bands like Alt-J, they kind of brought back a little bit more of that trip-hop flavor. Oh, definitely, yeah. And I think that like actually MGMT and... Well, actually, mostly MGMT. I, I don't want to say like Foster People so much. No, I, I, I talk about... Foster the people because I love torches so much, but I understand that people consider them, you know. Torches is a job. Yeah. But my point was going to be that MGMT, I think, actually kind of maybe walked so Tame Impala could run, I guess. Yes. Yes. I would I would say that yes. Like I don't think Tame Impala would have gotten as big as they were if MGMT didn't kind of set a groundwork for electronic, psychedelic, heavily mm-hmm. 70s inspired just trippy music in that sense. Like even MGMT's debut, which by a lot of like fans is considered their most like accessible and their most like pop friendly because of the hits of kids. Is that time to pretend? That's time to pretend. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, electric feel, which is one of my like all time favorite songs. I love electric feel. That song's amazing. And I think that song has aged so well. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. For a song that's like almost 15 years old at this point, because, or actually it's almost like 20. Actually, it's it's closer to 20 years old at this point, because I think it came out in like 07. So yeah, it's actually closer to 20 years old at this point. It sounds great, dude. Like, it sounds like, honestly, if it, it, it's, it's one of those things where it sounds like it could have come out yesterday. Is that in your top 10 songs of all time? I don't know about top 10, but like top 15 or top 20 for sure. Oh, okay. I was close enough. For sure. <laughs> I mean, it's a great song, but I don't know if it's like a top 10 caliber of song for me. But In like, your top 20 easily, though. 
Yeah, yeah. I would say top 15 for sure. Okay, top 15. Yeah, I mean, the groove is just like so infectious. I mean, like structurally, like the chords, I mean, the chords are actually kind of are pretty cool themselves, but it's nothing like groundbreaking from like a chord perspective, but just no. There's no blue note. I don't think there are any blue notes in that song. I think it's pretty pentatonic. No, it's all and it's all a lot of like popular types of like chord voicings too. I mean, there's sevens, I think. They are sevens. Okay, and then maybe there are some blue notes, but it's not really like if there are blue notes, because there might be some sevens, but they're not like in your face. No. You're right. It's a really dude. I mean, yeah, that's what makes pop songs so fascinating is because you really don't I'm not going to tell people that music theory doesn't matter. I know I've said it billions of times on the show that it's not the most important, but I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It does matter, okay? Of course it does. However, feel, electric feel, I might add, is what owns art. I'd say for any art form, whether it's food, music, comedy, feel, timing, all of those things are much more important than knowing just a bunch of ingredients that you just throw into a pot. Like you can't just throw a bunch of good ingredients into a pot and have it taste good. Just like you can't just throw a bunch of notes into a song and make it taste good. Right. And so the less is more philosophy is very important in art. And so I'd have to say a lot of pop songs, they hit home because they're so perfectly executed with a minimal amount of ingredients. Yeah. And Electric Feel, I think, I wouldn't say it's even the most simple pop song of all time, but I would say that its most appealing characteristics are the ones that are simplified, like you were implying. Yeah. No, definitely. And like I said, I think that's kind of why it like really stood the longevity test is because I hear a lot of other bands and other artists with that similar blend of groove and then also just a lot of production things, a lot of production things that were done on that song and really that album still sound really new. Mm -hmm. They somehow were able to capture in 2007 or 2008. It was 2007. You were right the first time. 2007. So, you know, it's psychedelic, but it's also kind of timeless in that respect because I don't know how they did it, but they somehow figured out like to make something sound old but also like new and thus also timeless at like the same time, I guess. And like I said, I, I, I do strongly believe that if it wasn't for MGMT success, that you wouldn't really have groups like Tame Impala or Mac DeMarco or Glass Animals or whatever you want to call it. Yes, yes, yes. Glass Animals. Wow. Good correlation. Yeah. As much as I trash on throwbacks, and it really is about how you do it, but um, MGMT pulled it off extremely well. And I actually kind of got tired of Tame Impala's way of doing it because I think I like Tame Impala's earlier stuff, but I, I really, I kind of got tired of it. But what is it called? Is it self-titled MGMT? Yeah, I think there was one that was like a self-titled one. The 2007 one, like a, one? Oh, no, no, no. That's not, no, 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 no. It is called Time to Pretend? or No, I wish it was called that. That would have been a better title. I think it's like... That would have been a better title. Um, it's a really complex title. Let me see what it is. Oh, don't tell me. 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 It's like a made-up word, right? No, it's not like Milo Zylido. Okay. No, I, I got it right here, dude. It's, what does it start um, with? What does it start with? starts with an O. I don't know if you're going to get it. Oh, is it oct- octo-something? Octo it's like octo... 
close. It's um, Oracular Spectacular. Oracular Spectacular. Dang it. Okay, I was off. It should have been called Time to Pretend. That would have been dope. But I guess, like, they wanted to be out there and be adventurous and, and call it something. I know it's them in, like, body paint and they're, like, shirtless, right? Yeah. You know, I, I do remember yeah, and that. It's like, and it's like the sun's going down or something. Yeah, on the beach. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Like, they, they, they look like they just got out of, like, they look like they just got out of, like, Burning Man, even though you see the behind the scenes and they're like computer nerds. So it's like, you know, weird, but maybe that's kind of why it worked because they have like, they're obsessive about like tech and sound. And maybe that's why it worked. Like I noticed that like a lot of times those types of people who are like really big into like tech and whatnot make like the most enduring soundscapes and like the most like enduring albums in case in point. I mean, look at like Brian Eno's discography, like, because, you know, Brian Eno kind of set the stage for a lot of ambient music, what we know is like ambient music and electronic stuff. But then you look at the records he produced, especially stuff with like Talking Heads and yep, uh, U2. He produced some U2 tracks. I know he did some stuff on Joshua Tree. I think he did some stuff on Octung Baby too. It would be like a Brian Eno kind of thing. I think so. Yeah, we, we can we can have a whole episode to talk about Brian Eno, honestly. Like, I would love to. I would love to. Actually, the Brian Eno thing could be definitely a two-parter because there's so much to cover. Like I said, like his groundbreaking stuff in the ambient space. Right. If you want to talk about the albums he produced for other people. Sure. Now, back to the, the MGMT thing. It's kind of interesting when you look back in like 2005, 2007, we wouldn't have, if it weren't for MGMT, we wouldn't have, <laughs> I'm going to say it, Passion Pit. We wouldn't have Passion Pit. We wouldn't have, Foster the People, Tame Impala, or The Naked and Famous. I can't believe that was even a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Group Love. There were just a lot of crazy bands that came from the MGMT era. And then in the early 2010s, oh, remember that one? It was, uh, it was like, I don't care. I love it. That one. Oh, it's Charlie XCX. Charlie XCX. Charlie XCX. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, no, Charlie that, XCX. Yeah, she's been getting a lot of acclaim recently for making kind of like more experimental music too. Actually, like um, a lot of people have liked her last few albums. Do you think she was kind of on a trajectory to be kind of a one-hit wonder at first? Well, yeah, because that song she did it with another like electronic artist that I don't care song. She did that with um, Icon Pop, and it was originally something where it was going to be like, yeah, it was going to be a one-hit wonder, but then. Charlie XCX started doing like features. Mostly, I think she kept relevance by like features because she was on that Iggy Azalea track. And oh my gosh, IZ or IA. Yeah. I forgot about IA. IA, yeah. Well, because IA just like disappeared off the face of the earth. She went know? MIA. Ah, uh, uh, MIA actually came back though, kind of. Oh, oh, because there's MIA too. <laughs> I forgot yeah, about MIA. MIA actually came back a little bit. <laughs> Speaking of 2007, 2008, Paper Planes is actually a track that holds up pretty well, I would say. Wow. MIA's Paper Planes? Yep. Like, I would say that holds up really well, actually, even now. It does. I mean, some of it's kind of corny. Like, some of the bars are kind of corny. Like, the chorus is a little bit, but like... But Mitch, aren't like almost all pop songs corny in some way? Yeah. And I think there's like an acceptable level of like corniness. And I think that, yeah, like, I think those tracks like fall into like what we deem as acceptable corny. 
it's not like corny where we listen to it and we're like, I want to turn this off like immediately. Another great band from that time, uh, Vampire Weekend, dude. Vampire Weekend also came up around that time. I was looking into the lawsuit because of that woman who had her picture in a Contra. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't it get settled a long time ago? And didn't she uh, get paid? It got semi-settled. I think someone like fell off the face of the earth because someone's trying to contact them. Something like that. I don't know. And it was, I was going to say, I thought she paid like a ton of money for it, but I could be wrong. Apparently, it was an undisclosed amount, but who knows who has the amount. Yeah, who knows what an undisclosed amount really means. It could have been like 10 grand or something for the likeness. Wait, wait. I don't know, man. I think you're a Contra. What? That was terrible. Wow. All right. Well, I think that'll just about do it here for this episode of the Work Tape Podcast. Once again, thank you all for listening in. We got some more great episodes coming. I'm Mitchell Palmer. We got Isaac Grover. It's good. Work Tape Podcast. Uh, we're going to run it up over summer. So, yeah. All right. Peace. Peace.